Welcome to the XVZF Podcast. I'm David Wolliver. The story you're about to hear was told by Desi Daskaloff on May 29, 2014, at the Magpie Tap Room in Toronto. The theme of the evening was persistence, stories about endurance. All right, hey guys. So awesome talk so far. Mine's a little bit different, and I've got crib notes because it's stolen. But while this story is not my own, it is a story that's had a huge influence on my life. And it starts back in Bulgaria during communist days, and I was actually born in Bulgaria, as were my parents. So my parents grew up during communist Bulgaria, and at the time, nobody was allowed to leave the country except for very specific business reasons. And all good? and for very short excursions that were only really to the Eastern Bloc. So everyone didn't feel very free. They felt that that they were confined within these borders and they couldn't really go anywhere. And the other part of communism was that there was no free market, there were no private enterprises, and salaries were set at a really low level, as was the price of um, necessary goods. So everything, the price of everything was set, and everyone was kind of able to make ends meet, but just barely. So everyone had this notion that they couldn't really work any harder to get better success. And their life was sort of out of their own control. And they were really at the mercy of the government. So they also weren't free in that sense. And they had this saying back in the day that was, the government pretends that they pay us, and we pretend that we work. So (laughs) you can imagine it wasn't the best situation. But while it's not absolutely ideal, there were some pros, and one of those pros was education. So education was free, available to everybody, and it was very, very high quality. So my parents both studied math in university, and when they graduated, my dad went on to do a master's in computer science, and my mom became a teacher. And they started working, and for my, for my dad's first job out of school, he actually had 37 days of paid vacation, paid vacation, but 37 days is like, completely unfathomable to anybody in North America. But the caveat was that he really had no money to go anywhere, so we'd spend our vacations in my hometown at home. Um, So my parents graduated, they started working, everything was pretty good. Um, And what happened is that the system was more or less working until the late 1980s. And at that point, people started to feel that the entire thing was falling apart. So they started to feel that censorship was a little bit less severe, dictatorship was less extreme, And there was this feeling in the air. I mean, there was no communication like there is today, but people could kind of feel this whole thing falling apart. And in 1989, there were extreme changes across all of Europe. And the Berlin Wall came down, and eventually communism fell with that. And where that happened in Bulgaria was um, on November 10th. And at that point in time, it was written into the Constitution that the communist government had to control the country. And there were elections, but the elections really only had, you literally had to go as a citizen and put in your one ballot, select the one party on the ballot, and if you didn't go, you would, the government could literally make your life hell. So you had to go and vote, but it wasn't really voting and it wasn't an election. So all of this is written into the Constitution. And on November 10th, what formally happened is that the leader of the Communist Party at the time had been the leader for over 30 years, so my parents' entire lifetime. And he announced that he was stepping down. And this was, structurally speaking, formally speaking, nothing really changed in the country. But the way that my dad describes it is that literally everything changed overnight. So he used the word euphoric. He said it was an incredibly exciting moment that day. 
and people that were once very fearful of the government and were really afraid and felt that they were at the mercy of the government lost all that fear virtually overnight. So over the next few days, it was very exciting. People took to the streets. They rallied the government to hold a real election. Parties started to form almost immediately. And in early 1990, the constitution was changed. And that was only the third time in the entire history of Bulgaria that had, that, that had ever been done. So it was a really big deal. So they held the first democratic elections in early 1990. So all of this sounds great. Like all this change is amazing, lots of chaos. But the economic situation became a lot worse. So what happened is that the price of goods um, started to, it was, uh, before this it was fixed. And it started to basically they let people set the price of goods. And what happened at that point was that inflation kicked in very severely. So people's pocketbooks really suffered. They couldn't afford what they could before. And the other thing that happened is that people just stopped working because nobody really cared anymore. So production of goods went down and things disappeared from stores. So you, you had to almost buy everything from the black market. So again, you weren't able to, your dollar didn't go as far. So the economic situation became really bad. And in the spring of 1990, my parents formally decided that they were going to leave. They, they just wanted to get out of this country. And the way they describe it is my mom looks back on her life and her story is that she looked at the typical life of a Bulgarian. And at that point in time, I was four years old, my brother was three. And she just thought, like, holy shit, the most exciting part of my life is over if I don't leave this country. And my dad just felt like for the first time in his entire life, he was free and there was this opportunity to really do something. So they decided to leave. And at that time, there were some flights. People would take a vacation to Cuba. And there was conveniently a stopover in Newfoundland. And if you just got off the plane, the country couldn't kick you out. So all you had to do was claim refugee status, and that was OK. So a lot of Bulgarians went on a few of these flights, and then eventually Canada clued into what was happening pretty quickly. So they missed that opportunity, because there's no, there's no communication to actually know that that's going on. So they were like, oh shit, we missed that. Now we have to come properly. So they decided that this was possible, but this was really a rumor. Nobody at that point had immigrated properly to the country that they knew of. And they somehow knew of a friend of a friend that had done it. So it was this like far off, kind of elusive thing that maybe it was possible. But in the spring of 1990, my dad started going to embassies. So he went to any embassy he could find that was in Bulgaria. And he didn't have any luck, so he started writing letters to embassies outside of the country. And he would write these letters, he'd type them out and print them on paper. And all his friends were like, this is crazy. Like, this guy is just insane, being so meticulous, printing this out, because everyone's just like handwriting at that point in time. And he mailed all these to all these embassies, and Canada wrote back. And they asked for $50 for a preliminary application. And if they paid $50, they could apply to then apply to maybe get a landed immigrant status. So their friends and their family thought they were insane. $50 at the time was huge, but they did it anyway. They applied. And in 1991, they got the application for landed immigrant status. So this application was $500. So at this point, their friends were like, you guys are really just off your rocker. Like You paid 50 bucks for a chance, and you're going to pay another $500, which is your whole life savings at this point just for a chance to apply to maybe get landed immigrant status. So they didn't care. They did that anyway. And this stuff takes time. So come 1993, they got a letter from Canada saying, amazing, you're approved. As long as you prove that you have $8,000 in your bank account, we'll give you visas, and you can move to Canada. So they were like, OK, $8,000. The only way they could do that was to sell their apartment. 
So they sold their apartment, and as luck would have it, they got just the right amount of money plus the amount of money for flights, and that's all the money they had, and everything like fit perfectly into a box, and it was amazing. So they decided, great, this is September 93, we're doing this, we're going to book a flight for mid-November, and we're going to Canada. So they tell everybody that they're going to Canada. And then in October 93, they get a letter from Canada saying, guess what? Turns out that the conditions changed. You now have to prove that you have $14,000. So at this point, they've sold their apartment. Prices of apartments are going up so drastically that they can't buy back their apartment. Um, there's no way they're ever going to save $14,000. Like, where does that money come from? Even given years, they could never do that. And they just didn't want to tell anybody that this was going on. So they decided that they had to solve this problem somehow. They didn't want to move back in with their parents. That was actually their only last choice. And then to admit defeat and suffer the embarrassment of doing something really stupid, people would really think that was very, very dumb of them to do. So they, they basically started calling the embassies, and they spoke very little English. And my mom wrote out phrases in English on a piece of paper. And she would call the embassy, and the guy would say something, and she would hear one word and then just read out these phrases and explaining her situation. She just called and called and called over and over, and that didn't really prove to be very fruitful. So <laughs> come December of 93, they heard about somebody who was coming to the capital, Bulgaria, who was dealing with immigrants, so they went and talked to him, and that also didn't prove to be fruitful. And then at this point, they had to move out of their apartment. So they convinced the new owners to let them rent out the apartment, but they started paying market rate for an apartment that they previously owned just a few months before. So they're in a really bad situation. And in the meantime, they're just telling everybody else, like, oh, we're still going to Canada. The visas are delayed. Everything's fine. No one knows they sold their apartment. So come January of 94, they're connected via a friend to somebody in Canada who's rumored to be able to help. So my mom pulls out her little phrases, calls this guy, repeats the phrases, calls him back over and over until he finally says, okay, call the embassy back, use this name, ask for this guy. So this is now February 94. She calls back and she says the name of this guy and these guys at this point just realize like she is not gonna stop. Like she's gonna continually call us and read out these English phrases until we give her these damn visas. So they said, fine, $8,000 is fine. We're, we're sending you the visas. So May 31st of 94, it was my mom's last day of school before she went on to like spring break, whatever it was. So she went, she said bye to her colleague. She said, have a, have a great week. I'll see you in a week. And then that day they got the visas. So my parents at this point were like, oh my God, knock on wood. Like this is incredible that this happened. We're leaving as soon as we can so that nothing else goes wrong. So they booked a flight for April 8th, which was a week later. And they tell their family that they're actually going to Canada, and the family's just in complete disbelief. They have no idea this is, they didn't think this was going to happen. They pack all their stuff, and all of us, the four of us, plus like family, extended family, go to the capital city where the airport is, we're going to leave. This is April 7th. And it's like a celebration, it's this bittersweet moment, people are bringing all this food. And somebody had brought kiwis. And... <laughs> Kiwis were like a real luxury at the time. Like people were just like, oh my God, kiwis are so expensive. Kiwis and bananas were a big deal. So my brother, who's six at the time, is just like wolfing down these kiwis. And he's this little kid and he eats seven kiwis. <laughs> like, no one thinks it's a good idea, but they're all letting him do it. They're like, he's going to Canada. He's not our problem. So he eats these seven kiwis and then is like an hour later just like screaming pain. 
and like rolling around like can't handle it. So my parents are like, holy shit, like we got to take this kid to the hospital. So he goes to the hospital and the hospital says like he clearly has appendicitis. And they've gone through this entire ordeal. It's, it's April 7th and their son has appendicitis. So thankfully, it turned out to be a misdiagnosis. No one really knows to this day. To date, he still has his appendix. So they end up just <laughs> releasing him the next morning. And my parents are freaked out because when you land in Canada, you're not, you don't get health care for three months or so. So they have this son who like had something, maybe it was appendicitis, maybe it was too many Kiwis, nobody really knows. <laughs> but like, if he ends up in the hospital, that's a huge deal. But at this point, they don't care. We all get on the plane, and come April 8th, 94, we officially move to Canada. So that's kind of the end of my persistence story. But you can imagine that coming to Canada without any money and not knowing anyone, and it's like dollars a minute to call back home, is, requires many, many more stories of persistence. So I'll leave you with one little anecdote. Our first year in Canada, I remember quite well. I remember the move and all this stuff leading up to it. I don't remember any of the chaos, probably because no one told me who's going to explain that to a kid. But I remember first year in Canada, my dad worked at Pizza Hut. He delivered pizza for a little while. My mom worked at a donut shop. They took any job they could. But they were also very concerned with making us fit in and integrating us into this culture. So the first year, they did a bunch of research on, it was my birthday's in December and we moved in April, so they had a few months. They did a bunch of research on what a typical birthday party in Canada was. And they wanted to hold this like really like great birthday party. This is like such a story of immigrant parents. <laughs> and they, they got the balloons, the cake, and the loot bags and everything. And they're still trying to save money where they can. So they hear about this pin the tail on the donkey game. And my dad is like, screw that, I'm making my own pin the tail on the donkey game. So he's like drawing a donkey like over and over and his drawing skills are not at all adequate. So I ended up with this like giant pin the tail and the squirrel and it's like big bushy squirrel tail. And I remember my parents being really concerned that people would kind of notice this and think it was funny that we like, couldn't buy a pin the tail and a donkey game, but kids just like loved it. Like this giant bushy tail and the squirrel and kids just don't know what the hell is going on anyway. So it was all good. So that's my last anecdote. Thanks for listening. That was Desi Daskalov. Desi is a web and mobile developer and currently the CTO and co-founder of Nudge Rewards. When she's not coding or building the business, Desi loves long conversations over patio beers, traveling to new places, and mixing up her vegetarian diet with the occasional poutine. Talk Audio was recorded by Tavi Burns. Chris Melito produced our podcast, Laura Sutula was greeting at the door, and our bartender was Amelia. XVZF is a regularly occurring night for Toronto tech workers to come together and share true personal stories. Find out more at xvzf.io.